It is sad to think that believing that this moment's entertainment will somehow erase the horror of existence. Your comforts are too taken from you. What is the point then of droning on? Another day, another revolution of the sun. More insects crawling about the planet's face, engaged in meaningless tasks they dare not question lest the horror of their existence be exposed to them. I've been sitting here for three days, not moving. There is no sunlight in this room. I don't know when the sun rises and when it sets. I don't care. I just sit here, not moving, as the days go by. Just sitting, motionless. What is the point after all? I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Except I can't hurt myself. I can't feel anything. I don't feel anything at all. Nothing. Nothing at all. 
I miss my boyfriend, the only man I ever truly loved. Here's the story. William's mother, Prudence, came from a notable family with some nobility in their lineage. She was considered good breeding stock with fine etiquette training and worthy societal connections. She was both lovely and refined, and her prospects were numerous and worthy. She was the great hope of her family, who secretly, very secretly, hadn't actually anywhere near the money left in their family fortune that they projected. It hadn't been squandered on anything particularly obvious. There were no gambling debts or foppish alcoholics who had burnt through massive sums. They simply had several generations worth of investments that hadn't quite pandered out. The expenses of being a notable family were immense, and in order to maintain appearances, investments needed to succeed. This was the job of the men. The men had failed. Women weren't good for much, past interior design, organizing societal affairs, and managing the servants. But they had a secret worth. They could be married off in a well-arranged marriage and thus boost family fortune and standing. Prudence was poised to do just this. Her beauty and refined education, not enough education to be smart, that was hardly an attractive quality in a female, just enough to have impeccable manners and be able to appreciate her future husband's genius, made Prudence a well-sought-after catch. Some of the finest bachelors available were falling over themselves in order to secure her hand in marriage. They all approached her delighted parents and aunts, parading themselves like strutting peacocks as her relatives made careful calculations of the family's likely net worth. Most didn't even bother introducing themselves to Prudence herself. I mean, what was the point, really? And finally, her parents and aunts made a very practical and carefully considered choice. Her future husband was immensely wealthy, of regal noble stock, sometimes a bit heavy-handed towards disciplining their women, but that was certainly more excusable than being too lenient and would ensure the family's good fortune for generations. Prudence would save the family. Thus, you can imagine the shock, shame, and horror when Prudence, ungrateful shrew of a daughter, instead chose to run off with a trumpet player. Although she would never be in contact with her family again, she did reach out a few times, but was firmly and spitefully rebuffed. She further insulted them by never ever coming to regret her horrendous actions. The only small sliver of satisfaction her family had to look forward to was her coming crawling and groveling back in tears of shame and regret. But alas, this never happened. She was happy and unrepentant until the day she died about 12 years later. 
The trumpet player in question was of low and mongrel breeding. Ah, the shame. If it's any consolation, he was actually a rather remarkable trumpet player. But even more so, he was a genuinely decent fellow who treated Prudence with love and respect, and the two of them were thick as thieves, approaching almost everything they did as a shared adventure. Instead of reams of money, they had reams of fun, and Prudence loved the lifestyle of a traveling musician. She went all sorts of places and met all sorts of characters. They didn't even let having a kid dampen their adventures. They just took him right along with them. Little William grew up on the music hall circuit, a life that suited a precocious, dynamic, and adventurous young boy. He learned to play several instruments, deliver opening monologues to packed houses, interact comfortably with all sorts of types from all levels of society, and of course, loved his mother and father with all his heart. Nothing in his very, very, very shockingly long life would ever break his heart more than the death of his mother when he was ten. The death of his father when he was fifteen came close, though. After his mother's death, his father tried desperately to fill the void her absence caused. He was careful not to drown his sorrows in alcohol and to be there for the boy despite his own grief. The two of them became inseparable. William would accompany his father to every single gig, sitting off stage or on a bar stool. His father's playing became even more beautiful, and William would often cry listening to his father play. The sound of the trumpet became holy to him, and in the five years between his mother's death and his father's, his father was by far his best friend. This is touching, but not necessarily healthy, as William never learned how to properly interact with children his own age. His entire world was made up of strange adults, and alas, a life approaching any semblance of normalcy was thus forever placed out of his reach. One of the reasons his mother's death was particularly tragic was that she was not the intended target. They had meant to kill his father, but the hitman was a retired musketeer with a penchant for lithium. Prudence's death upset her family greatly, who had hired the man to kill her husband. Livid over his incompetence, they then hired a second hitman to bump off the first. After this, most of them begrudgingly admitted their hopes were dashed and considered the entire affair done with. A cousin of Prudence's, however, had a hard time letting go, and the idea that the husband survived did not sit well with him. Five years later, he had a particularly fantastic night of cards, and with his sudden winnings and feeling of drunken exuberance, called the second hitman up and hired him to take care of William's father. This was done competently, and William thus became orphaned. William was taken in by a trans woman who had known his parents well and was beloved by them as well as William, Mademoiselle Chantirelaine. She was a fortune teller for a carnival that William's father had sometimes played in the band for when gigs were particularly dry. 
She and William's parents had spent many a pleasant evening drinking a little too much brandy with the fat lady and the geek. Mademoiselle Chantirelaine's skill with the tarot was formidable, although divination is a tricky and problematic art form. She saw the danger coming, but it took some time to work out that it was William's parents who were in trouble, and even more to track down their location. She did not arrive in time to warn or save them, but she did arrive in time to whisk William away before his horrible and toxic family could get their claws on him. She was very skilled at dealing with people in emotional distress and should really be credited for William coming out of the entire affair not nearly as messed up as he could have been. This is not to say he wasn't messed up over this, but really, it can always be worse. It was also because of her that he disappeared after his father's death. Obviously, he didn't disappear. He went on the road with Mademoiselle Chantirelaine in the carnival. But when his relatives scooped in to grab him, hoping there was some way he could be used to an advantage, he was gone, and it would take them months to track him down, having come up with a very important use for him. Their intentions for him weren't that lofty. A powerful duke was assembling a small army for some military ploy, and family houses that provided soldiers and officers would be noted and favored should the ploy be successful. None of the cousins had any desire to risk their lives on a battlefield, but Prudence's bastard, useless for anything else, would be the perfect tribute. Military age was 17, but 15 was certainly close enough. Alas, William was off with the freak show, overcoming his grief in the company of a strange but loving cast of odd characters, many of whom had themselves come from sad and unfortunate circumstances and were very supportive of the boy. He was unable at the time to appreciate the carnival's archetypal connection with other fairs and performing troops in our narrative, but their kindness and close connectedness were great comforts in this difficult time in his life. It really wouldn't have been worth the effort to track down William, except the Duke was quite intent on soldiers to fill his army, and William's estranged cousins would have to be the volunteers if there was no William to take their place. So they ponied up and hired a specialist to track down the missing teenager. William was found and his whereabouts reported to the cousins. The cousins were further incensed by the lengthy travel involved in crossing the countryside to catch up with the carnival. Still, they made the journey themselves. There were four of them, and they brought fine swords should the lowlifes be any trouble, fine swords being something not available to the common peasantry. Chantirelaine saw it coming. Divination is sketchy even on the best days, so it wasn't like she knew the details or the exact nature of what was coming. But she knew males from William's bloodline with nefarious intent were on their way and would arrive within 48 hours. Thus she prepared by making sure William was ready to hide in a carefully prepared space in her coach at a moment's notice. The young men arrived and demanded that William be presented to them at once. 
Their arrogance was a bit deflated, however, when they realized that they were in an uncivilized pit in the middle of nowhere, with no bribable constables nearby, and a carnival full of horrible freaks and peasants. Still, their high station comforted them and allowed them to repeat their demand that William be brought to them immediately. He wasn't, however, and the carnies just shrugged and proceeded to ignore them. This possibility had never occurred to them. They were not used to being ignored. It had actually never happened. They were honestly not sure how to respond to all of this. The most sensible reaction seemed to be to raise their voices and issue threats of violence and harm. When this too was ignored, except for some scattered guffaws, they were truly at a loss. Three of them were becoming enraged, although one of them, the smartest actually, was starting to realize that they may not be in the position of strength they thought they were. Finally, the lads drew their swords and pointed them at the nearest person, old McGillicuddy, who stood chewing his tobacco and staring at them as if they were a bush he was about to urinate on. The rest of the carnival stopped setting up. The cousins had finally gotten everyone's attention, and the tension had suddenly skyrocketed into something dark and deadly. The cautious fourth lad now began suggesting that they withdraw and make a new plan elsewhere, but the others assumed that they now were finally about to get what they wanted, having showed these vagabonds that they were serious and that they were clearly the boss. The leading lad, sword-pointed at old McGillicuddy, gave him one last chance to turn over William. McGillicuddy spat in his face, a particularly impressive glob of saliva and mucus. A peasant had never dared show such impunity before, and the leading lad was enraged. He sliced old man McGillicuddy across the chest, and then attempted to skewer him, but the old carney was faster than he looked. He dodged and punched the lad in the face, a powerful blow that caused him to stagger and fall to a dumbstruck sitting position on the dusty ground. Then the old man retreated. The four lads now found themselves in the center of a circle of carnies, all just out of thrusting range, many of whom were holding rocks. The lads were now visibly sweating. Mademoiselle Chatirlaine calmly walked towards them and gently informed them that they were mistaken and it would be best for everyone if they were on their way. The lads were for the most part inclined to agree, except for the leading lad, who had now recovered from the punch and was murderous. He proceeded to insult Mademoiselle Chatirlaine in a variety of rude manners we shall not repeat here but which caused her to wish them a lovely funeral and turn her back on them. The leading lad went to stab her in the back, but he never got close. The resulting melee was not nearly as tragic as it could have been. There was only one casualty, the leading lad. Two of the other lads had a variety of lumps, black and blue marks, and swollen faces, and the fourth the cautious one had a bloody nose and two less teeth. 
the carnival disappeared within two hours. Justified or not, they had just killed a member of the aristocracy, and trouble, bad trouble, would follow. Shatira Lane sat William down and explained the situation. She told him that this would not go away, and now serious people were going to come for him. She suggested he head to an urban area, Settington, and lose himself there. She knew a man who operated a printing press who was a good client of hers, and who perhaps could take him on as an apprentice. They would drop him off at a town where he could grab a stagecoach. She hugged him, apologized, and told him she loved him and would always be there for him if he ever needed someone to reach out to. Three days later, they dropped him off in a town with a stagecoach stop that could take him to Seddington. It was a hot, dusty town. Mademoiselle Chatierlaine gave him as much money as she could, enough to pay the coach and afford room and board for a few weeks. He sat on the side of the hot street alone all day long. In the afternoon, someone in the nearby saloon started playing a trumpet. William sat by himself on the empty street, listened to it, and cried. It makes sense that it should happen this way That the sky should break And the earth should shake As if to say Sure it all matters But in such an unimportant way As if to say Hey, hey Fly away, sweet bird of prey. Fly, fly away. Nothing can stand in your way, sweet bird. If you knew the words, I know you would say, fly. Fly away It makes sense that it should hurt in this way That my heart should break And my hand should shake As if to say Sure it don't matter except in the most important way as if to say, hey, hey Fly away Sweet bird of prey Fly, fly away You know I won't stand in your way Sweet bird If you knew words I know you would say fly fly
Fly away. 